All right. I'm gonna try real hard not to cuss. Okay. It's okay. <laughs> This is the Coffee Celebration with your host, Wendy Steinberg, and today we have Dr. Sarah Upoff, and she is an old special friend, and not that we're old, but like we've known each other a very long time. Um, Sarah was a student at Northwest Missouri State University while I, when I was a hall director there, and uh, we just clicked. Uh, we took classes together. Um, I learned from her. I continue to learn from her, and so... Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and uh, we'll go from there. Okay. I'm always really awkward with this part because I'm not really sure what I'm supposed okay, to say. Okay. Just talk to me. Like I'll people talk, just want to know I'll you. Okay. <laughs> We're pretty much just going to laugh the whole time. So everybody just get used to it. Okay. <laughs> There's these long gaps of like us gasping for air. That's not it's great. I mean, you know. Um, so when I left, like when I left uh, Northwest, I took my own tour of uh, as many schools of undergrad apparently as I could fit in before I decided to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And then I still didn't figure it out, right? I just sort of um, that experience that I had being an RA at Northwest ended up being something I did when I went to grad school at, at SIUE. Um, and ended up becoming my career really up until 2019. So, and what year did we leave Northwest? Um, like, should we since say since we were prodigies, now? we were like, <laughs> <laughs> yes, right. oh, <laughs> must have been. Oh my god, I left Northwest in '96 to go to grad school. Okay, so. When did you leave Northwest? I think I actually left uh, Northwest in 96 too. came back to St. Louis, started at UMSL uh, oh. for a semester at University of Missouri, St. Louis, and mm-hmm. then had a history teacher say that slavery was actually, um, that, that, that uh, Black folks came over as indentured servants, <gasps> not slaves. Who bailed you out? because <laughs> I know it wasn't me who bailed you out no um I was like you gonna get a whole class full of white people's ass kicked as soon as they walk out of this uh <laughs> as soon as they walk out of this class and start right like I like what you're saying yes okay is way too complicated but I remember I was like okay this can't be where I stay um and so I ended up transferring to SIUE and ended up getting finishing both my bachelor's and my master's in African-American and women's history. So uh, when I got to SAUE, I found, uh, I came across Dr. Sundiata Tijua, who was one of my professors at the time and was like revolutionary in my, in my development, right? And so um, I've been in activism and like addressing those things since I was young. And I think being with him really taught me like how systems and structures worked. And so, um, and then at the same time, being able to work with students, originally I thought I wanted to teach, right? Um, But getting to be like in that higher ed space really lets you see so much different part of like how students connect what's happening in their life to how they learn. Um, And so I think that's why I stayed for as long as I did, right? And then as you move up, 
you get to do that same thing for master's level professionals who are finding their way. And so I think one of the things that's been true, regardless of where I've been at, right, is that I'm motivated um, and care about the relationships that exist in a place because the, those all matter. So then after, after that, I moved to Texas and was in student affairs at Texas State and UT for a while. Um, and after about 70 years of being in Texas, came back home to be uh, closer to family. And so was a dean at um, Harris Stowe, which is a small uh, HBCU here in St. Louis, and then changed career fields uh, to a large extent in 2019 and started um, doing uh, diversity education uh, for a large healthcare system here in St. Louis. So like from a professional space, that's sort of the change. And like, as I'm talking about it, I'm thinking as someone who constantly is arguing about, we are not the result of our productivity, despite what capitalism says, I really just told you who I was based on my productivity and what I have like accomplished in the world. So I have a dope ass kid. I will dance in the produce aisle. Um, my kid is 21 and is taking me through all of the changes. And uh, let's see, I love poetry. I don't know what else. Oh I'm my God. Well, where did you get your doctorate and what was it in? What was your thesis or your dissertation on? Um, so I, uh, while I was at Texas State professionally, I started uh, and completed my PhD from Texas State University in San Marcos. Um, and so my dissertation looked at how you can utilize, how spoken word poetry um, can help adult learners engage in transformational and community learning, right? And so really the essence of that is, I'm a storyteller. I believe everything makes sense through our stories. We make sense of life through our stories. We can't connect to each other through our stories. Um, and so I'm deeply invested in understanding how, um, as we understand our stories and tell them, how do we, how does that affect how we understand ourselves and each other? Um, and so uh, I've written poetry sort of as healing since I was a kid. Um, you know, went through some tough stuff. When you're a kid, you don't necessarily have as much autonomy over your voice as you'd like to. Um, and so that paper became a place that I could like um, say whatever, do whatever. Um, and so in 2004, like that was like, I still have poems from middle school, right? That are like tragic to read now, but we're great. <laughs> Uh, in 2004, my girlfriend and I ended up at a poetry slam. I was like, people do that. Like people share their stories out loud. Um, and like, I mean, you'd seen it in drama and all that kind of stuff, but it was very different, right? People were writing their guts, like, um, and the way that other people with those experiences in the audience would connect. And it became my family away from family, right? Like, uh, literally the first night I went, I, I like that first night, I challenged myself to go on mic. The, the poetry venue we ended at was, was a mostly African-American venue. Um, and by the time the end, like I was cousin Sarah by the time we left, right? Like it was just very, our stories connect us and like poetry just moves me so, so much, right? Uh, especially when you know that, that it's not just performance, it's um, and so my dissertation really looked at, you know, the way that those stories can be used, the way that poetry can be used in formal, informal learning, um, the way that it creates community, the way communities bonded. I always think of, you know, when I was going through a custody battle with Javon, who's my son, 
I wrote a poem about his dad and I being commanders in different armies, trying to do the right thing, right? And at the end of the day, Javon was the war we were fighting. And that was what was getting, you know, like he's really the one taking the, the hits and all of that. Um, and I remember doing that poem and it didn't matter where, it, how many times I did it, how many times I practiced it, I fell apart. And every time I got off stage, somebody else who felt alone in their custody battle, like we would end up having conversation, you know what I'm saying? So that's where I got my, that's where I got my dissertation. And a lot of the work that I do now centers around the utilization of experience and story in the context that we're learning, right? So what we experience and what we don't experience equally inform how we understand and share our stories. So like, Sometimes when I'm like, yes, I wrote a whole dissertation on spoken word, poetry, and people are like, oh, that's really nice. And I'm like, okay. No, no, <laughs> it is transformative. It really is. Um, you know, we, I was talking this morning to somebody about how music is like that also, how it's healing. It's like, it's a bomb. And so as you're talking, I'm thinking, of course, it. It, it provides that kind of um, sacred space so that you can, you know, live through it in a different way, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's, uh, it's amazing to watch community build <coughs> that way. Right. Mm -hmm. And like, even in some of the training that we do with clinical staff, uh, as educator, I learn because I'm not, I'm not a clinical person. Right. And so when we're talking about issues of empathy and equity, have y'all talked about what, what keeps you from being able to do that or understand, yeah. you know what oh, I mean? Yeah. So, yeah, I'm with you. I think that that articulation is transformative. And I, so I'm, a, I'm always a big proponent of like, life is art, art is life. Like those things are not, very rarely are those things separated. Yeah. yeah. It's funny because <clears throat> I showed my son that, that clip from Facebook, that memory about what he said about, um, have I ever been in a poetry slam? And then <clears throat> he's like, I don't even know what that is. I'm like, you did when you were seven. And he's, <laughs> he's like, I must've got it off the internet or something. Because he's like, I don't remember rhyming about colors. And like, he's just, oh my gosh, you know, he keeps me on my toes. So he, I love that. I love that kid. He is wise beyond his years. The things that he says, you know. Yeah, he really is. Um, so when we, oh my God. Okay. We need to not do that. Okay. Someone's calling me and I'm not answering. Okay. So when we met, we took this class. What was it called? Remember race and it was this little tiny woman at the front of the, remember her? Mm -hmm. I remember we were the only two talking in the whole class. Remember that? <laughs> yes. And yeah, that no was no one else would talk in that class. No. And well, I mean, we were in the middle of nowhere. So well, yes, that's true. It was okay. And first of all, Northern case is about cow tipping. So I'm just saying we were in the middle of nowhere. So. <laughs> okay. Northwest has changed now. So please, people who are still there, judge us favorably. Um, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I'm not 
saying I didn't have a good time. I'm saying there wasn't nothing to do. It wasn't a whole lot of like. Okay. When I was recruited to go there, one of the big things is that the um, main square looked like Back to the Future. Remember? Like it was the main square. (laughs) So there was 10,000 people in the town. And um, yeah, it was good times. So, I mean, we both stayed there our two years and at the time, I remember you were really involved with soccer. Did you play soccer for Northwest or? I played on a club team for a little while. I mean, I started playing soccer probably middle school. It's definitely something I wish I had started younger. I think once you get to a certain age, it's harder to develop some of that finesse that you could have unless you're, you know somebody who's just naturally born with that talent. Um, so I played like rec ball most of my, uh, most of my, like from middle school on, uh, I didn't play as much in high school because I don't like to be told what to do. And I felt like my coach was a jerk. So <laughs> he didn't like me. I wasn't a fan either. It was not, you know, and then you tell me what to do too many times. When I felt like you were mad. I was out. Um, but I still love, still love to play. I still, I still watch it. So I played club ball for a little while, and that was a very interesting experience because I think I was only <laughs> one of two women who were on the, that that club team, um, and so that was a very, but it was also the only option out there to play. So I haven't played in a long time, um, but but I still watch the, I still watch a lot. And like when the U S women's national team plays, I, I don't know who's sending me a check, but somebody must be because I'm deeply invested in what's happening right now. <laughs> All I do is I follow your Facebook thread and it just, it, it is the best. Like I can literally hear you talking and it is, it's phenomenal. It's phenomenal. <laughs> so when you were at Northwest for the two years, what was your major? Like, what did you think you were going to be going into? So I actually thought that I, I ended up going into early childhood education there. My dad was like, I'm not going to fund your revolution. So I'm going to need you to find something that's going to make you money. Oh, my gosh. He's like, listen, I, I, I'm with you with the one to do good. Can't fund your revolution. OK, so I'm going to need you to, to find something that you can earn a living on. So I was like, oh, I'll go into early childhood. I'll get them when they're young. And I will never forget. Remember the lab school that we had? Mm-hmm. And we were in the classroom at the, like towards the bottom. The walls were yellow. She was reading a book. And a child who like, I think maybe had special needs walked up to her while she was reading the book, slapped her in the face and said, I don't want this book. And in that moment, Sarah knew being a teacher for young people would result in her going to jail because that child would have lost his spirit as he flew into the, like, I just, it was not like a little slap. Like it was like thunderous. And I was like, how did your little body? What happened? She kept her calm. She, she like calmly held his arms and was like, Sarah, if you could finish reading the book, I'm going to score him out. And I'm thinking, he would have already been launched out. I will read. I, I'm trying to like digest what has just happened. And I literally left that class and changed my major to social science. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was not, <laughs> I was like, no, I need to be able to tell you to get out of my classroom. <laughs> like I need to be like, you, you gotta go. 
Now, I've yeah, never had, I, I don't think I've ever had to put a student out of my classroom, but. Even when you taught at, um, in Texas, because you taught classes. Yeah, I don't know that I've ever had to put a kid out of class. I've had to put them out of a program, um, but I've never had right. to like, remove a kid from a class. Now, we've had, so, had to have some conversations about what needs to happen before you return a class the next time. Right. But I mean, I think that's part of part of the that's part of the learning. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, th- I mean, I think there are things that you put students out for. I also think that there's a reasonable level of intellectual crazy that comes out of me. So I also feel like I don't agree with that. <laughs> I think you're fabulous. Oh, it's a skill set because I feel like part of them was like, hmm. We don't know if she's going to be Sarah or our teacher when I tell her this right now. You know what I mean? Like you could catch any personality because if you want to talk like you're not a student, then I will talk like we, I'm not a teacher. We'll have a grown person conversation. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, uh, you know what? I'm just so grateful that when I taught, it was before Rate My Professor. So then it didn't have to go online, you know? I would, I would be mortified to see what people thought of me when I taught. Listen, my, my mentor was life-changing and most people hated him, but it was because he was like, he wasn't here for you to do things half-assed. Either you were mm-hmm. going to show up and learn or why were you here? Right. And is that the mentor you had with your master's? Yes. Dr. Did, you, did you find someone just as um, amazing when you did your doctorate or? I did. Um and, you know, I still maintain a relationship with Sundiata. When, uh, Javon, my son has two middle names and one is, is, is Sundiata's middle name. Uh, he has his father's middle name, Sundiata's mental, middle name and my dad's middle name. Okay, uh, so what is it? I didn't know all this. Yeah, Javon Kaida Allen Lawrence. Wow. I know people are like, why'd you give him so many names? I'm like, mind your business. It has like, <laughs> for, me, for me, where there's like always 14 Sarahs in a class, you know right. what I'm saying? Like name, I, I wanted my kid to have a, a name with deeper meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, when I started my doctoral program, um, one of my close friends was already in it and uh, he was working on his dissertation and he suggested that I take a class with Dr. LaRota, who ended up being my chair. She is probably one of, if not the most transformational women I've ever worked with. Um, I have, she is the epitome of what it means to be a good educator. I will never forget the night before, the weekend before my proposal was due, the the original proposal. We got together on Saturday morning and she sat with me for 11 hours while we went through all three chapters of my, and like, she just, she just never gave up. You know what I'm saying? Um, She is from Columbia. Um, and so I just, I learned so much about myself, right? Um, and I think it's just different. Uh, I think when your mentorship, you know, as a woman, there were things that I was able to get in that mentoring relationship that I don't think I would have been able to get from Sunyata because there's that, that shared, mm-hmm. that shared identity. And so uh, her, uh, Dr. Guajardo, who was also on my um, dissertation uh, committee, both of them uh, absolutely, I think, changed my life. He introduced me to community learning exchanges, which 
it is very it's, it's 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 both simple and complicated but it really is around valuing space and what people bring to the space and and and, and trusting that people already have the answers sometimes you just need to be there to help facilitate what they already know right and so very much sort of both of them come from a very much a, a Freire, Paulo Freire, pedagogy of the oppressed framework, right? Like that, that education is about growth, um, is about changing the world. Is not it's not a it's not a banking model, right? Like there's purpose in in our liberation, and that can happen through partially through our learning and education from each other and ourselves. So uh, both of them do such incredible work. Um, both inside and outside the classroom. Um, and so um, I still keep in contact with Dr. LaRota now when I go down uh, to visit, hopefully next month, I'll probably stay the night with her a night or two. Like she's a, she's someone who's in it because she wants to see students succeed. And, you know, I think sometimes when you get to that level, um, it becomes about you being a researcher and <laughs> and teaching is what you do to be able to do that. And she's very much the antithesis of that while also publishing a ridiculous amount of. Right. Yeah. So, so have you found as a white woman, any kind of pushback? Um, do you know what I mean? And, and you could check me now. What does Lindy say? Um, you know, in being that ally and advocate and person that tries to, um, cause I know I've asked you so many questions when my kids have questions, you know, and you just tell me how it is. And I'm like, this is what Dr. Sarah said. And, you know, um, <laughs> I mean, because we're not African-American or black or, or what, whatever ethnicity, um, and so how have, I don't want to say been accepted, but like, you know, because you have always been like revolutionary from when I met you in 94, it was just like, you, I mean, we would go to every event together. We took that crazy class. I mean, it just was, it's, it's just part of your fabric and who you are. And so did you ever you know, find people saying, well, you don't get it or, and, and be like, you're just a white woman. Yeah. And, and the truth of the matter is there's truth to that, right? There are spaces that I, I, if, if you are white and in this work, part of that, that I think if you are white in advocacy or allyship or being an accomplice in order to be anti-racist, <laughs> you have to be able to recognize where we don't, where, where we are not the expert where we can't know, right? And so right. Um, I think it is it is learning that balance of, of what do I need? What is the information I need to know, right? Like what is the historical social context? What are all of those pieces? And then also understanding my privilege, right? In that space. And so how can I utilize it? How can I name, name, name what isn't happening and use that to be able to shift what's going on? And at the same time, I think it can become a place uh, like it is hard sometimes in my current work. Like, do I trust this knowledge or how much of my whiteness, right? And sometimes I think that sometimes I wonder if I, if I 
discount myself at times, right? Um, but I think I think part of that is learning when you're taking up space, when you're mm-hmm. contributing to space, and when you're taking space from others. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, and so I, I would say that's probably the hardest piece. Um, and then, you know, sort of knowing what is what is your lane. So when I don't so I don't know so much if it's about being accepted. I think part of it is understanding that there's a historical context of of why I'm distrusted when I walk into a space as as one of or the only white person, right? That my presence changes the dynamics. Yes. There is a period of time that 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 there has to be to get to know who you are, right? Um, and even then, um, uh, I was actually having this conversation with a friend, Kali, the other day. She's she's African American. She's like, you know, as long as I've seen you, I just don't see you as a white woman. And I I totally appreciate the compliment, right? The compliment is, I see that you get it. I embrace you as part of our community. But the truth of the matter is, you know me. If you didn't know me, that wouldn't be the case right. because I come with all. You know what I mean? All these pieces. Yeah. Um, and so it's like. Um, it's that being aware, right? And I think that that's the important part of you doing this work, like understanding what is a white identity development? What are those pieces? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't know that it's so much about being accepted as it is about recognizing how our dynamics historically from system to individual, right? Have sort of created uh, this dissonance. Cause I think sometimes as white folks, we really don't recognize how much racism costs us as well. And I think I remember that. at Northwest, you remember Marcus? He so he called me Wendy Wynn, right? So <laughs> and um so Marcus and I, we were at like Makuho or some sort of like conference, and it was in Minnesota, Minneapolis, and you know that's the home of Prince, right? So a group of us were going to his club right? Which is like the mothership for me next to Target and Starbucks. So um, he stops me in the hallway before we get to this hotel room. And he goes, I want you to know you will be the only white person in this bus, in this room. And I'm like, oh, I don't care. And he goes, but if it was the other way around, I would hope you would tell me. And so for me, that was eye-opening. Because you know me, I just, whatever, I just go and I'm just, okay, you're purple, great. Do you you like coffee? I mean, it's just like, whatever happens, I just go with it. And that was really eye-opening because um, I didn't really understand it until then. And I I totally get what you're saying. Um, After my father passed away, I, I went into this, judge me favorably again, into this outpatient like therapy program through a hospital because, you know, he was the last one of my family to pass and I just needed to get grounded. And there was a woman, her name is, name is Nicole. And we were, you know, she lived around the corner from me. I drove her, whatever. And, you know, she was an African-American woman. So one day we're drinking coffee, which is so odd. Um, And she goes, you must be light. And I'm like, light of what? like light, like I didn't understand what she was saying. And she's like, you've got to be light. And then she explained. And so as you're talking, you know, 
I think, and I know that I'm not light or, and I'm whatever. I just know that everybody has value and everybody deserves to a place at the table. But, you know, I've had that happen to myself as well, where, you know, people feel like we've created, like no one has to like prove themselves, you know, or I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think where we, where we, you know, that's the difference between where we want to be and, and like the reality, I think of where we are. Right. And so she, she's a little bit younger. And so just sort of talking to her in, um, yeah, I I think in in talking to her, it's just, you know, reminding her that I appreciate she feels that comfortable and I never want to forget what I'm bringing into a space. Right. Right. Um, and so until we like, we need to get to a point where the, those things don't require a, you know, the, the supremacy that comes with white, like that comes with white privilege and the way that we have created systems. Um, and so I think again, like that, 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 like, the navigation, right? Because earlier in my development, because to your point, like in my relationships, very young, um, I grew, you know, grew up in St. Louis. It's a very segregated area. It's very segregated by race and class. Um, and so I lived, uh, a lot of the people I were friends with were African-American students who came out to the county through the desegregation program. And so I experienced in middle school and high school, a lot of alienation from white folks and a lot of acceptance from black folks. And I think that part of my like identity development really, there was many years as I was younger where I really struggled with the fact that I was white and very much wanted to divorce myself from that. I think that that's a normal, when people are really doing the work, like you don't want to be part of that group, except that we are, right? Like, (laughs) Um, and so I think for me, like that piece remembering that right that 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 is always something that we carry um and being willing to make some of those um make the necessary shifts to do that um and so and I mean I've gotten it the other way right I've had white people be like you know you're not black right right and I've had I've had other black folks say you know you're not black right and I think that that's part of it during the time period where I didn't want to be white that was problematic right where I wanted to distance myself and I was never confused that I was black I just wanted to distance myself right, from being white, and, like, even having to deal with the internal bias I sometimes have about us, mm-hmm. right, okay. right, is, is, is a yeah. thing to be, to be, if I want, fo- if I want the, if I want the rest of us to get there, yeah. <laughs> right, then, yeah, what, yeah like, wh- where, where am I showing up, and so when I talk about my role in DEI work, I recognize that that's a lot, that's really the, a lot of my responsibility, is to go get my cousins, right, and, and, like, how we need to get um, our shit together and being able to use that space. So like, there have definitely been times in my, in my current role, will myself and my colleagues of color will be in a meeting, something will be said and the conversation is redirected back to me. Right. And so an example, I think is just being able to say, uh, that's not my work. That's my colleagues work. So I think that's a question that needs it. Right. And I think that just those, those, those I feel like I'm kind of all over. This isn't really coherent, but it is coherent. Okay. <laughs> Um, I think, yes, right. So I, I appreciate when I get the compliment and I'm always clear to be sure that there's no confusion. I recognize my whiteness and what that brings into a space. Um, and then how am I being mindful of using it in the moment, right? Um, 
How do you, okay, because I wanted to ask this, because, you know, sometimes you get a message from me and I'm like screaming from like from NPR <laughs> or something and you're just like, oh my God. Um, it's likely but, that I was just having the same screaming thing. Mm-hmm. Now okay, fine. All right. okay. <laughs> okay, you just, I beat you too. All right. But the thing is, it's like, you know, Breonna Taylor, it'll be two years this March mm-hmm. that nothing's been done in Louisville. Um, and there are so many cases like today, Trayvon Martin would have been 27 years old, you know, mm-hmm. and there is so much that makes me hate being white because I don't align myself with those values and it is devastating, you know, to turn on the radio again and have like, oh, another um, situation where someone in a position of power who is white um, feels it's okay to, I guess, impose that power on somebody. And it's just, it is, that's when I scream in NPR. Yeah, I, I can't, so. Yeah, and I think, I cannot remember the author's name right now for the, for the life of me. Um, but the sense is, this is what racism is wrought, right? And so, mm-hmm. I think that's one of the things that white white folks we often struggle with, right? Like I I, I've ha- I have this conversation with folks all the time. So when we say white people are racist, our response is to be individually, I'm not racist. Being able to recognize that you doing your work does not mean that you're not part of a racist system, right? And so when we talk about the difference between individual and the systems, right, that we live in, the institutionalized things that we benefit from, we have this tendency to immediately want to be defensive. And one of the things I've learned more about in the last few years is really the biology of some of that, which has been mind-blowing. Um, but I think, like, to your point, in order for us to, to not continue to hear those, th- then that's the work, right? That, and so that, that, that is a, a dichotomy, I think, for white folks who are advocated or who are dedicated to becoming anti-racist, right? Is navigating that I am this and I'm not for this, right? Um, And recognizing like whiteness was created to establish power. That's the only reason we have whiteness. And for white folks, we only have to think about being white when it's in juxtaposition to someone of color. So then it's easy for us to be like, well, that's a them problem. You know what I mean? Because I don't have to deal with this until you come along. Uh, rather than recognizing this exists because of the structures folks who look like us have have created and maintained. So, yeah, I think, I think that that's part, that is part of the learning, right? Like I have to catch myself when I'm like, what the hell is happening? Like, okay, all right, yeah. so. <laughs> no, I know. I mean, I have conversations with my boys. I mean, I have three boys. I mean, Max is Max, but, you know, Hayden and Noam, like anytime something like this comes up, I'm, I'm just like, it, it's going to be up to you. Like you have to be the one as a, as a white male to advocate for people who cannot, are not 
heard. They advocate for themselves, you know, because I've, I've, um, there was something that was said recently, if the January 6th um, infiltration of the Capitol were African-Americans, everybody would either be dead or in prison by now. But because it was white, crazy people, sorry, because um, <laughs> nope. they looked crazy. They looked crazy. They looked like something was going on. Um, and I mean, it was, it, 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 was, it was just, <laughs> okay, thank you. All right. I, I feel validated. But like, you know, and I tell my kids that I tell my kids, like, if let's put someone else and, you know, even that student from Northern Kentucky, from Covington, um, Latin, um, uh, it's a prep school. It's very expensive. And when he was face-to-face with that Native American leader two years ago, he ends up getting a payout for all this media coverage, $250 million. And this Native American man who just wanted to be validated, accepted, heard, because we took them out. I mean, and, and they're still struggling. Like, they don't get any benefit. And... I don't know. I tell them all the time, like, whatever. I, you know what I mean? I, I don't tell them whatever. I say, you know, but like, I better stop myself because I'll just keep going. It's hard. It is it's hard. Yeah. Um, I think one of the spaces that I'm currently navigating is, is Jay is 21, right? Mm-hmm. And he is, he navigates the world as a Black man. And mm-hmm. The hardest thing right now, not like outside of knowing that he, you know, is consistently in danger differently, is navigating where my whiteness and momness are overlapping. And that shit is kicking my ass, right? Because where I want to go in to tell him this is what you need to do, I'm now being cognizant, like, bro, but yeah. It's not just your kid. You know what I'm saying? Like you're also talking to a black man, even though I've always known that he's now more on his own and I have to listen different. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so like, I'm like, he and I have talked about issues of race. I believe since he can ask, as soon as you can ask about it, we, you know what I mean? Then we need to, mm-hmm. to be able to talk about it age appropriate. But so like, he definitely has an understanding, but for myself, this has been a recent sort of, I guess a recent awareness that I have to be extra careful. Um, he, it's been probably seven, seven or eight months. It might be longer, um, maybe, but it's been within the last year. Um, he's currently out in College Station, which is a mostly rural college town. Um, and so he was waiting for his dad to pick him up from work outside the mall. And um, he was like, mom, I was sitting on the ground listening to my headphones. He's like two girls who work at Lane Bryant walked out. Um, I think that might've been the story. I, I don't know. Two girls who worked at mall came out, um, white women. Um, and then within they both look over at at him and then within a few minutes the police are there and have received a call that there is some that there's a black man outside a closed mall acting unwell um and so right so as he's telling me about this experience right um 
I am literally fighting between my momness, right? And my own agitation with folks who look like me. Um, and also how is my lens filtering how I'm responding, not just as a mom, but as a white mom to a black kid, right? And so making sure I was able to listen, it ended up going without incident, right? But, um, and when I say without incident, I mean, he's safe, he wasn't arrested, right? But to say he's not shaken up or that wasn't a moment for him, right? Where it's another just example of what he has to be aware of as he exists in the, in the world. Um, oh, no. Right. I remember like talking to him in, in both a mom and an educator way. And I had to stop with the educator part. Like I had to be like, as your mom, I'm, I'm sorry. And I'm scared. Right. But trying to explain the experience with him, I just stopped. Right. And I'm able to give him historical context. I'm able to give him my lived experience as it relates to what I know, how I've seen others treated, uh, you know. Um, so what did you teach him um, when a situation like that would happen? Because I don't, I don't want to say if it would happen, just because I know it's when it would happen, you know. So how did you navigate that with him before it even happened? So um, I'm trying to remember which one happened first. Trayvon Martin was killed. What year was that? How old was he? He was 17, wasn't he? How, I'm trying to remember how many years ago that was. I'm trying to remember how old Javon 2012. Was. Do you want me to Google it? So that means Javon would have been 11. Mm-hmm. So I think, so that was first. Um, so one of the first conversations we had was uh, Trayvon looked very similar. And I mean, very similar to one of his very close friends. Um, they had very similar facial features, wore their hair the same way. And so I feel like the first conversation we had about safety and being black, like we had talked before about, you know, being mindful and and whatnot, but that was the first time where he was like, mom, he looks like Tristan. Do I like, will someone do this to Tristan? Right. And so that was the first time we had to have the listen, you know, um, and, and, um, the world is, is, is categorized based on race. Right. And so there are things that will be experienced differently for you because you're, you're black. Um, and so we talked about, um, you know, if he's ever approached by a police officer now, clearly Zimmerman wasn't that right. But if you're ever approached by a police officer, we don't put our hands in our pocket. We don't move we don't move quickly. If we need to get our wallet, we ask, you know, we say, do you want me to get my wallet out of my back pocket? So I think he was 11 when we had that conversation for the first time. Um, you know, uh, I think that, you know, it's tough because at 11, they don't totally understand it. And it's, so it's this thing of like, how do you make sure that they're prepared without making them afraid of everything? Yeah. Um, And again, that's one of those spaces that I'm negotiating from learned experience, not lived experience, and that distances me, right, to to a degree. So that was that was the first time. Um, A couple years after that, he would have been probably 14 or 15. And so we he where we lived, he was able to like walk to elementary school, right? And so 
next to the elementary school in the it was in the middle of the subdivision and so next to it was the neighborhood basketball court and so Javon was I don't know their fifth grade is the last year I think he might have been about to go into the seventh grade so he and his best friend who um is uh, uh Latino are playing ball it's the middle of the summer in Texas door to the school their elementary school is open they go in to get some water um and custodian is like what are you doing here are you supposed to be here um and they're like we're just getting some water and then you know one of them is like oh the teacher over there knows now the teacher didn't know but they're also not doing anything besides coming in and getting water so they come in they get water they go back out to the court i appear i get a phone call from the police that i need to come and get javon because the custodian has called the police on these kids for, and again had they been tearing stuff up or whatever that makes sense to me you see somebody vandalizing right but at that point they had come in gotten a drink and gone back and even then i'm not sure i believe that police should be called on someone that young you have administrators go have a conversation with the kids right um and so we repeated right the conversation around like you've got to be just a little like a little more aware and again like not even just the awareness making sure that you're calm right when they when they come up and just sort of explaining like how do we survive these moments to be able to address the issue and even this sometimes I'm doing the best that I can and I'm not I don't know if I'm if I'm always right but I, you know what I know is the things that I've learned from from the relationships that I have, the, the the knowledge that I've gained, like I need you to do these things. So the 10 and 12, we keep our hands. We don't, we try not to, you know, get angry. We don't say more than we have to say. I think those conversations start like started at 11. Um, and like, I think when, I think when the, for me, that the, the police getting called when he went in to get something to drink was the first holy crap for me, right? Where I'm like, dude, he's like 13 or four. like, I mean, he looked like a chicken wing. You know what I'm saying? Like he was a very thin, very thin, tall kid. Um, and his best friend is a short little tiny, you, you know, they were both tiny. And so I was just like, the police were necessary. You know what I'm saying? And so that awareness that kids who look like him are deemed a threat at, at a much younger age. And so again, that balance of how do you let them live, right. you know, protect them. So that, that was sort of how, how we had the conversation. And we, we, he, he and I still process those things now. Right. And I try to be clear when we talk about them to remind him, remember, I'm also speaking from the lens of a white woman and that's different. Um, and so I think naming it has been, you know, has been the most effective way to talk to him about him when he asked me questions giving him information to read and telling him what I know and uh, ensuring that he has mentors and people that he can talk to who do share that identity who can give him guidance and insight that I can't um, I think that was the other that was the other piece is, is recognizing that I needed to create spaces where he could gain the you know gain the insight wisdom and support that it, I just can't give him as as his mom who's white as you're talking, I am, and I get like this, um, you know, it ebbs and flows. I get so discouraged in our world that I'm like, why did I have three kids? And I'm putting them in this place that 
It's just so unkind, so unfair. Um, I just, it, it's hard for me to um, stay encouraged and, uh, you know, it's, um, it's just, our world is just so, it is scary. And I don't know. I don't know how you stay like so up and, you know, cause some days I'm just like, this is awful, you know? Definitely don't, I'm not always up. There are definitely days where yeah. I'm like, like this, this shit is never going to change where it like, there's definitely, there is definitely times where it feels like, like I, I'm fucking throwing, oops, sorry, throwing pebbles into, you know what I mean? Like I'm throwing pebbles into the ocean, hoping to make a monsoon. You know what I mean? Like, like if there are days where it feels like nothing is happening. And one of the things that has always stuck out with me is uh, Dr. Sherry Ben was our, uh, a VP, one of our associate VPs for our multicultural student office. Um, and she provided me so many opportunities to get involved with DEI work um, while I was in re- worked in residence life there. And I was teaching a class um, and we were doing some work around race. And I was in her office and I just like had a breakdown. I was like, these kids are going to leave my class unchanged. Like these essays, like this tells me we didn't make any progress. And she goes, not a single kid has shifted. And I was like, I have a couple who shifted, but these kids haven't moved. She goes, those are your pebbles. She's like, you're, you're not going to change every kid. And, and I think that that is part, again, I think that's part of, and I don't know if it's a process for every, you know, person who becomes an ally for a group, but I, I think that's part of that um, that process. And I totally just lost my thought. No, you were talking about how when you were teaching the essays you were reading, just, you know, no one, you felt like you weren't even making a difference. Yeah. So I think it's easy to feel like if I can't get them to change, or I'm supposed to be able to change this whole thing, Mm -hmm. we feel like we're failing. Right. And I will never forget that piece of advice. I mean, I was a fairly young professional at that point. And she was like, you have to remember that it's not just this one kid. This one kid is going to go have conversations with other kids. This, uh, this kid is going to go exist in the world. Right. So you may not have hit these four, but you hit these two. Why do, why are these two less, not your focus, right? Like um, if you keep trying to change everything, you're going to give up because it'll feel like you're changing nothing. Right. You know, and I think right. that that was one of the best pieces of advice. Uh, it's still hard sometimes mm-hmm. um, going into healthcare. I don't know if this was the best or worst thing I've ever done. You know what I mean? Um, I'm definitely now like, Jamal, we don't go to you. Don't go to anything but a black doctor. You understand what I'm saying? I don't give a <laughs> sh- how far we got to drive. You know what I'm saying? Like, this, we're not no more white doctors for you. Right. And I know that not every white doctor is a threat, but I don't want to have to do like some sort of psychological exam to figure okay, out. Okay, tell me why, tell me why, tell me why. Um, because there, there is far too, okay, so in a, the most prevalent example, um, in 2016, Pearson textbooks released a nursing textbook. Mm-hmm. There is an entire half a page with so many racial stereotypes about 
Native American folks, Black folks, Jewish folks, uh, Muslim folks. Like there is so many. And one of them, right, is this historical bullshit that Black folks don't feel pain at the same rate of white folks. Why is this still in a textbook in 2016? Because this was read by a lot of people, right? So when I would do orientation uh, for our new employees early on, I would ask those folks who had gone through like medical programs, how many of you spent time studying issues of equity, issues of, of diversity? And almost none of them had any significant coursework or could say that those things were woven throughout their coursework. That's a no, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so um, when you are, are looking at, at like even some of the studies and whatnot, um, race, gender, those things are not taken into to account. Um, I mentioned that St. Louis is heavily divided along class and race, right? And so when you don't have a, a, an understanding of, of those systems, then it becomes this, this African-American person who has heart disease, but won't eat better, is still smoking, you know, okay. Do they live in a food desert? Like what access to food, right? We're not asking, we make it very individualistic. Right. Um, I think we teach uh, in general, the way medical school is, uh, is taught is really that people are problems to solve, like problems to fix rather than people with illnesses. Um, there's a study of narrative medicine, of course, right? Stories that I found that, that helps utilizing that helps people become people rather than this is a problem in room A I need to fix. Yeah. So for me, Javon, Javon needs to have someone who understands what is missing in the medical field, right? Um, race medicine, like that's a term I struggle with uh, because I think that that's how we've, you know, continue. I mean, if you remember when the, the, when the pandemic first started, there was this whole conversation around whether black people could get it, whether they couldn't, whether it was as severe. That language, it's literally the same language from the Spanish flu. Mm -hmm. Because during the Spanish flu, we said, oh, black folks can get this. And so- and That's also why um, black people were given syphilis and Henrietta Lacks. Nobody knew what was going on with her body. Like her family didn't even know. You right. know, there's so much abuse in that regard. And I really think it is- I mean, it absolutely you can, Claire, you know, tell me that's not really it, but um, you read these books of just what happened to her and why, why were these healthy men given, was it gonorrhea or syphilis or something like that? It was like, why, you know, yeah. I, it's, I mean. Right. And that's part of the conversation we have, right. Is that uh, with a lot of our white clinicians, right? When they're like, well, I don't know why, you know, they're not trusting me or why they're anti, I'm trying to help. And I'm like, because we have literally since slavery experimented mm -hmm. on black folks. There mm -hmm. is a distrust of black folks of the healthcare system. And you have to, as a clinician, figure out how to not take that personally and understand that as you show up, that will impact whether or not they feel safe. But you can't just disregard like even Johnson and Johnson, which was the least effective vaccine, was what mm -hmm. was sent mostly to poor neighborhoods, yeah. poor urban neighborhoods, right? So yeah. like now you're wondering why more black folks don't trust the don't trust yeah. the vaccine. That's very to me, that's a very different conversation than I don't believe in science, right? Like I don't trust the science that you continually have abused me with. And so 
Um, I found there's a there is a professor out of U of I. Uh, her name is Dr. Hogarth, and she has done a lot of work around race um, and medicine, and that is definitely an area of research that I think needs to be more deeply explored. It needs to be more deeply embedded in medical programs. Um, and so for me, I want someone that can take the, um, the, like all of the impacts, right? All of the considerations of what it means to be black into Javon's health care space. And that, again, black folks are not monolithic. It doesn't mean that just because he has a black doctor that that doctor is going to take better care of him, but there's a better chance, right? That Mm-hmm. Something is not going to get overlooked or he's not going to be as easily dismissed mm-hmm. if he's with someone that recognizes that that's part of the system. Um, and so like, absolutely, uh, just the, no, I mean, and also as a woman, I'm not really excited about being in healthcare. You know, like, I just, I'm like, I don't know if this helped. I was never good about calling the doctor when I needed it in the first place. I don't, I'm not sure that that working <laughs> healthcare has actually helped that. Right. Um, but I appreciate that there's an office, you know, mm-hmm. that's dedicated and has spent time that we have the opportunity to be in with teams and, and start to work with them. Um, yeah. but yeah. nope. Nope. Sorry, baby. Go. Nope. All right. I mean, I feel discouraged and, you know, half the time it's, it's not even, I mean, as a woman, as a Jewish woman, like I have a Jewish female doctor um, because there are certain diseases specific to being Jewish. And I feel like as a woman, you know, sometimes we aren't heard or validated. I remember my mother, she had desperately wanted a hysterectomy, but her male gynecologist told her to write it out. And it took two years of constantly asking and showing up and telling him that this isn't something she can live with anymore, you know, and, um, and I am in no way comparing myself as a Jewish woman to people of color, because it's not even, it's not even near each other. I'm on the bottom of the food chain. Like when it comes to all of that, you know, I just know that, um, I get a little discouraged when I, I know things can be different and um, it's, yeah. Yeah. Just clarify. So we don't get sued by Pearson. Pearson did pull the textbook off, mm-hmm. the shelf, but it doesn't matter. Anybody who goes to college looks for the cheapest edition of whatever book you can find to get. Right. There are still yeah. students who have, who have learned from that piece, but yeah, I mean, having that cultural awareness is important, right? If there are things that, you know, based on your identity potentially exist and my doctor has never been introduced to that, how can you ever know to look for it, right? Right? Um, The more and more research that comes out about the biological impact, right? Of years of trauma that African-Americans have faced, right? Like I need a doctor that I know can consider that as they're looking um, at Javon, I need to know that if he goes to get counseling, somebody can consider those pieces. Um, you know, during some of the custody stuff, it was very difficult at times to find counselors of color, and that disconnect was clear. And I think didn't always help Javon get what he needed sure. out of those spaces. Um, and so, does he have what he needs now? Does he have a doctor? Does he so, have a- 
now it's a little harder because he's 21 and he's got to do some of that stuff on his own. So part of that's just follow through. Um, where he's at has been very difficult to find a black doctor. We're hoping that he's going to be moving to an area that's more, um, just not rural, right? That has uh, like closer to uh, the Austin San Marcos area <clears throat> in Texas where he has just access to more doctors. Um, his, the counselor that he talks to periodically isn't, we, we, were, we were able to find an African-American male for him to talk to. And I think that that piece has been helpful. It's, it has started to give him a more positive feeling around counseling because it took him a long time to go back to that one um, or to go back to one period, right? And so finding one that I think understands his identity is, has been a little more successful. Um, yeah, but so finding him, uh, finding him a black doctor anywhere near College Station, the closest place we've been able to find one is Houston, and that's about an hour and fifteen minute drive from where he is. Are you serious? Yeah. Oh my god. I mean, there are, are there are doctors of color, but a black doctor specifically. Um, there's a there was an older gentleman, but he's. I think he's on his way to no longer be, you know what I mean? Like he's taking patients. He's only here a couple of days a week. And so he like even trying to get in was, was difficult. So yeah. Um, it's just, I don't understand how we're like still not having these conversations. Like you are literally coming in to be a, a doctor to a variety of people. And we're still teaching these incredibly biased things if we're teaching anything at all. Right. Like even now the conversation around, do we, you know, the father of gynecology, quote unquote. Help that. I read about that. Go ahead. Right. Like experimented on slave women. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You cannot talk, but, but we don't talk about that when we teach about the father of gynecology and med programs. Right. That's the whole, that's the whole story. The whole story is you discovered these things by torturing black women right and so it's important like I need you to name that when we're having these conversations so that we when you come in to to help folks you understand the context right mm -hmm. um it, it's just I, I think for me it's the consistent lack and, and I mean we're not like we're still having this fight now right you got people arguing that 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 the truth shouldn't be taught in history and like in, in school so I think that yeah it's just a yeah, it's, it's, it's messy. Um, and I mean, it's just consistent with the, you know, educational indoctrination that we have had for a long time. And I think right now we're at a, a pivotal moment, right? Um, right. And I think I, I, I do worry, right? That, and I don't know if it's necessary or not. Part of me feels like yes, but I do think that we're headed for some, for some tumultuous times, right? Um, but I, I do have hope. You mean even more so? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think, I think we should entirely be ready that we could have an internal civil conflict. Like at the place that we're at, it, I wish I could remember her name. I was watching this video. She's a professor out of California and she has studied uh, for 30 years conditions in countries that are like volatile, right, politically. And sort of what moves them into into that volatility, and then they determine like what is the probability that there'll be civil unrest in, in, inside. Um, and so she's like, for the last four years, I've been on this CIA committee, right, looking at other countries. And so the interviewer says, if you were from this committee position, 
analyze in the United States, where would we be on that list? And she said, we would be at, at, at moving towards high risk. She's like, once you hit high risk, you're put on a global list to be watched, right? And she said, because it has accelerated so fast, and I, I, if I'm naming it correctly, the two things she said that are the most, that are the two biggest factors, right, that, that is heading for that is one, that you move from, ha- you move to having less democratic approaches, right? Like more less democratic rhetoric. It's not exactly how she said it, but essentially moving away from more democratic approaches and the use of gender, ethnicity, race, right? To polarize politics. She said, those two things are the most, are are two of the most significant indicators. And we are absolutely in the midst of that right now, right? Yeah. And so, so sometimes I, I, I worry. And also I'm not sure that that's not what's necessary. You know what I mean? And so I don't know. I I believe that we have made progress, but the stuff that's happening right now, I'm just very concerned as to how we, when you're making a, essentially trying to just thinking that right. Right. And it's, I think 17 states have made have made critical race theory not teachable in school in some way. Right. Right. Okay. Like your screen is green. What happened here? Oh, I don't know. I don't know either. I still see me. Uh, and I'm frozen. So keep talking because we're okay. talking. But mm-hmm. I wanted to bring up critical race theory because isn't it um, Tennessee most recently or was it another state that um banned it from being taught i think i I believe tennessee did i know that the new virginia governor used an executive order um to be able to like essentially saying critical race theory um also i wish people would use that right um teaching whole history does not make it critical race theory just so we're clear that's a different entire lens but okay um Okay, this is why I love you. Go ahead. I'm like, toupee fiasco said critical race theory, and now here we are. So, right. Um, so I, yeah, so I, I think those, those kinds of things, right? And, and when we have now hit the point where just because you have conservatives on the Supreme Court, the fact that we've become so attached to whether you're Republican or, 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 or Democrat, whether you're conservative or liberal, right. tells them, like we don't have the the that is not functioning as it should, right? right? Because you're supposed to be making decisions from law, right. uh, not political party, and that's not what's happening. So, or there's the argument to be made that we're heading in the direction that's not what's happening, right? Um, it can't be that abortion was legal until we had. A conservative heavy and now all of a sudden we figured out that the laws say we can't do these things um and at the same time right from the other side we've now twice had the opportunity to make this into law and we still haven't focused on that right um and yeah so i i 
I think that we're in trouble in many ways, right? Because not only are we having critical issues with critical race theory, like all of this crap with the pandemic, I, I just read something that said the co- that colleges, not universities, but colleges in Oklahoma have closed down or are closing down their education programs because they don't have enough people applying to be teachers anymore. Oh my God. Well, this is another issue about that. Um, and we could go on forever, y'all. We might have to do part two. But um, with teachers, they're asking master level teachers to accept $35,000 as a salary per year before taxes. And it is, um, you can't live on that. Nope. So um, as someone who has a master's and yourself who has a doctorate, um, some of the salaries that are placed on job postings are um, very humorous and um, nobody really wants to do that work if they're not going to be um, paid for the education and experience that they have. So, yeah. And I, I think that's one of my struggles with higher ed right now is that I don't know that we haven't created a lie that If you go to school, if you're somebody who needs loans, mm-hmm. there's no guarantee that what you're I, I, like that you won't be trapped under that, right? Um, and we, you you can't tell someone you want a master's degree and then not even pay them enough to pay off what they owe their master's degree. You know what I'm saying? And yeah, so I think that, uh, yeah, that's definitely um, problematic. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's yeah. I don't even know how I'm going to put my kids through college, you know? Right. And, and my thing is, is, is college, is college really like, and I say this as someone who's deeply committed to education, right? Like one, I'm not sure that some of this stuff that's coming out from the pandemic won't shake higher ed to its core. Like I have friends who cannot keep their halls staffed. Yes. You know what I mean? And so either, either they can't keep them staffed because people are like, you're not going to keep exploiting my labor. Uh-huh. Or they can't keep them staff because somebody gets Corona and then half the staff is out. Right. Yep. Um, yes. We're exhausting healthcare workers. We're exhausting teachers, you know, and the other piece for me is this, like there are places where people are having conversations where there's so many teachers out sick and they're like, well, we're just going to pull up, you know, our environmental staff, or we're just going to pull in our administrative staff. Right. And I'm like, I would just want us to be very clear. If their response to teachers being out is to put in anyone else, then school, you don't give a shit that your kids are there for school. Right. It's for capitalism. It's so that you have daycare so that you can go and get a job. It's also why I think we've gone to a much more rote memory banking education style. And I have to agree with that because I help out occasionally um, here and there at, you know, my kids' schools. And I see that, I see that. And it feels like sometimes it's a Band-Aid, you know? Um, We had one of our Jewish day schools in town shut down for three, four days and be like, there's there's not enough teachers this week. They're, you know, everybody's out sick. Um, We had a snowstorm recently and it, it took a while for the closure of one of my son's schools to go through. You know, I'm like, we got two inches of ice and three feet of snow. Um, I'm not coming in. So um, 
Yeah, it, uh, everything you're saying, I agree with, and not just because I love you. Yes, I think we fool ourselves into, I'm like, hey, y'all, you, you know, we constructed when people need to go, to, you realize that no, like, external force from the universe was like, children must be in school from this time to, right, right. Um, Javon's not going, like, is not interested in college right now, and mm-hmm. having been in college for 20 years, there are lots of kids who were there who shouldn't have been, but we told them yeah. that's what Oh, we so. know that, 100%. Yeah. Right, and you know what, the students I work with, um, you know, they graduate with an associates and make more than I've ever made with a master's, you know, and I don't think when I was graduating high school and getting ready for college that that was really an option. Like I really wasn't aware of vocational programs or, you know, associate degree programs that could really just put me on track for a career. You know, I just didn't know that. Well, I think also we make, we, we created a culture where that was less than. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Pandemic didn't teach you that less than doesn't exist. I really don't know what else, what else. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Sarah, I love you. Love you. I'm so glad, you know, I feel just so grateful that we are still in touch because I continue to learn from you and you continue to challenge me. And when I call you or text you about something my kids said, or how do I respond? Um, I mean, I remember you telling Noah, Noah had asked me why black people are different. And I reached out to you and you said, uh, just tell them that they have more pigment in his, their skin, you know? And he took it, he's like, okay. And that's how he, his like lens is now that he, they're just different. Cause like, I'll put my arm next to him and I'm a little darker than he is. And, you know, we kind of do that um, because I really want them to see that, um, you know, everyone is diverse in, in some capacity and, you know, you're like my, um, I don't know. You mentor me through these processes with my boys and I'm very, very grateful. So I love you. I'm grateful as well. Um, you teach me, you know, a lot as well. And I think, you know, that's why relationships are important. Um, I actually shared with Reggie last night about having sent you the meal plan thing. I was like, I know she's trying to manage so much. And I was like, so I saw this, this meal plan thing that I felt like was from a trustworthy source. Yeah. I know that you, that you follow your religion more in a more orthodox manner. You know what I'm saying? And I still didn't, it didn't even cross my mind that the food wasn't kosher. You know what I'm saying? And so I think that's, that's the benefit of being in community is like recognizing that. Now, what do I need to go learn to remember, you know, to remember that piece. Right. And I think, you know, no one was a lot younger. And as he gets older, you'll be able to explain more about the systems because you've been able to explain to him that how we were different, right, was constructed by someone else. Someone decided the pigment in our skin gave us value. Right. Um, and so, um, you know, I think it helps us get past that colorblind space, right, to while that utopia would be nice, the real utopia is we can exist in whatever bodies we have, right? Um, and that different isn't negative and that 
if we really want that to change, we have the power to change the systems that create that that that, that inequity. So it's an ongoing, like it's just ongoing. An ongoing process. So I appreciate the ways in which our relationship supports each other. Um, oh, absolutely. I we have been through so much together. Um, and um, you support me in so many ways. And um, I'm not getting teary at all, but um, we're going to shut this down so I can put my emotions back in a box. <laughs> no, but really, like Sarah, um, I've known you since 94. And here we are Four years a few ago. years later. And uh, <laughs> And uh, your friendship is priceless. And I love you. And love you so too. thank you for taking the time. And we will continue this conversation, I hope, in another segment. Um, it took us a while to get this segment because feeling good, not good. But um, I'm really, yeah. really grateful. Thank you so much. Yes. All love right. You. I love you. Okay. Talk to you later. Bye.